We, of course, began a study last week on the uh, book of 1 John. We're looking at 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. We're going to look at these consecutively, one after the other. Last week was kind of just an introduction. I would encourage you uh, to mark in your Bible. Uh, I, that's one of the reasons. We've had a lot of people ask me to put the, the text and put the uh, scripture up on the screens and have it there so everybody can see it. And and one of the reasons, I mean, Pastor Gus usually gets the, the main text up. He puts that up at the beginning when we're reading, but then doesn't put it back up. And it's because I want people to have a relationship with the Word of God. I want people to be able to look at the Word of God in their hands and in their Bible. And you will, over time, it, 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 this seems like such a large book. And all of these pages and all of this scripture and you, you, know, you look at it and think, where should I start and what should I read? And, and so much of it doesn't make any sense. Well, the more you're in God's house and the more you build a relationship with God's word, the more you begin to recognize and put things together. It's just like any other subject that you're studying. When you start to learn some pieces and elements, all of a sudden those two pieces fit together. And you say, oh, wow, I see how that works now. And then because you have that foundation, when you hear another piece of information, you can link that to what you already know. And, and the chain gets stronger and it gets longer. And so I would encourage you to, to look at the word of God, have the word of God in front of you. And I do you a disservice many times because I get moving and I, for the sake of my studying and organization, I have all of my notes typed out. And uh, the, some of the teachers that, that have taught in the last couple of weeks, they've got basically, that's what I teach from. The notes that I give you guys is, is what I teach from. And it has all the scripture in there, but sometimes I don't wait for you to turn there. And I really need to slow down and stop and let you get there because you need to see it in the word of God. And you need to be highlighting, you need to be marking, you need to be making notes. And I'm going to try and put in my notes to reference for you to make notes <laughs> so that you can uh, make some notes in your Bible. And what's amazing is when you're in your own private devotions, you'll open the Word of God and you're reading. And when you don't have any notes there, you might not remember anything. But when there's a little note there, even something small, it will bring back to memory that lesson. It'll bring back to memory those truths that you heard or that you learned. And you can start putting those pieces together. And that takes time. But it does come a, a, a somebody that's been saved for many, many years outside of the fact that, you know, we get to a point that you have to get a new Bible. And anybody that really has a relationship with their Bible doesn't like getting a new one because you lose all those notes and you lose all the references and, and you're used to having all of that there. And, and uh, you know, but. You know, if you've been saved a long time, your Bible should have a lot of marks in it. It should have some references in it, some points in it, and something to help you in your study. So we began last week looking at the introduction here in this book. We looked at the author of the book, uh, of course, John, the apostle, the younger brother of James, that he was a friend of Christ, and what a privilege to be a friend of Christ. We tried to get a glimpse of his character and his compassion. I introduced it by giving you, we're in Risby's, uh Three main themes that he found in the book, and that is light versus darkness, love versus hatred, truth versus error. And then we looked at the five purposes for writing uh, this book. Does anybody remember any of the five purposes that we looked at last week? Brother Dave? That, joy may full. that your joy may be full. That's good. Yep. There's several that are right in the beginning of the, of the, uh, of the book here. That we sin not, yep, that we sin not, that's one. Fellowship is correct, that we might have fellowship, yep, there's three of them. Um, yep, 
1 John 5, 13, that you know that you have eternal life. And overcoming seducers is how I put it, but yes, overcoming or watching for false doctrine. And I uh, gave you those references last week with regards to that, but those truths. And so um, that, ty- that type of thing would be a great thing to have a little note in, your, in the margin of your Bible or to unlight, underline it and circle that and, you know, and say reason for writing or uh, you know, one of five or just pointing those out through the scriptures as you're reading. You'll be able to find those in future. Now, the overcoming false doctrine we talked about last week was a particular group that had a, uh, a unique belief. And it's not far from what we, some people believe today. Does anybody remember what the name of the group was? They were started with a G. The Gnostics, yes. And so Gnostics come, the, the word Gnostic the, comes from a Greek word that means knowledge. And the, the, the Gnostics believed that they had special knowledge from God and that you had to get it from them in order to really know or understand those truths. And, and so they were trying to overcome that. Uh, as John's writing to these people, he found these Christians were challenged in this Christian life, and some were wondering if they were saved, and he deals with that. Some were wondering if Christ was even real. And uh, you remember, we talked about it, how they were denying that Christ was the Son of God, but he made it very clear uh, that anybody denies that's a false, false doctrine, false teacher. They were wondering if Christ had risen from the dead, if he had, if he had actually risen from the dead, and uh, you know, he squashes that. They were wandering into presumptuous sin, and living lives of hypocrisy. And uh, so he's dealing with these things. And that doesn't sound too far from things that we deal with today, right? I mean, that's the amazing thing about the Word of God, regardless of the fact that it was written uh, how many thousands of years ago, it is still as applicable today as it ever was. It'll never be an outdated book. It'll never be a book that's not applicable to us in our life today. And we want to remember that and make sure that we are taking God's word and applying it to our lives. Now, he had this that he wanted to teach these men. And he begins right here in verse number one. We're going to get into the text now and kind of go verse by verse. The title of this evening is The Joyful Life. The joyful life. And we're going to uh, look at each of these first four verses, and we referenced them last week by introducing the, the book itself. But tonight we want to kind of dissect these verses, dig into them a little bit more. And he begins at the end of verse number one. Well, let's just read verse one, follow along. He says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have held of the word. Of life. This word of life, John begins right at the beginning describing the word of life, which we know was Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ personified the word of life. A word is something that gives voice to an idea or a thought that you have. If, if I had a thought, I mean, sometimes when I'm dealing with somebody, let's say I'm dealing with some kids and one of the kids is really mad, I, I'll try and get them and say, okay, I need you to articulate. You need to tell me what made you so mad. I don't know why I'm so mad. Well, I can't help you if you can't tell me what made you mad or why are you mad. You need to be able to art- articulate that. You need to be able to communicate that. And, and so sometimes one of the hardest things dealing with really young children when they get hurt is you don't know where they hurt. <laughs> you know, because like, they can't tell you. You know, they can't articulate it. So a word is an expression or a clarification of a thought or idea that you have internally. And so, beloved, Jesus Christ was God's 
answer God's expression of what he wanted to tell mankind. He is the word made manifest. He is the word. He is the actual living word of God. God had something he wanted to tell the nations of Israel and the world at large. And so he sent his son. The example of what he wanted to say. He gets into this right away. And I want you to see several truths that are, that are presented here. We're going to see, first of all, that Christ is eternal. We're going to see that uh, Christ is experiential and then that Christ is essential in these first four verses here as we walk through this. We see that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have held of the word of life. John was assuring the believers there that this was nothing new. You see, in, in Christianity in those days, you know, today's world, there's a lot of new things coming out. Uh, we we are, are inundated with the new. We like the new, the updated, the, the, the most relevant, the most prevalent. I was telling, I think it was Matt this last week, that my camera, because I'm the pastor and I don't do much with video anymore, that my camera is several generations old, the one I used to shoot. I said, yeah, after my camera, which is a GH4, they came out with the GH5, and then they came out with the GH5S, and then they came out with the GH5S2, and then they came out with the GH6, and then they came out with the GH5S2X. And mine, so mine's pretty old. They've been around a long time. But we like to have the latest and the greatest. We like to have the newest. And so in, in John's day here, dealing with these people, there might have been a mindset or an idea that Christianity, this idea of, of worshiping Christ, was new. You had those that believed in the law and the, and the old, uh, what they would call the old way of believing. But John wanted to say, this is not new. This is, and, and this is amazing when you think about it in light of uh, the Old Testament doctrine and how, you know, I believe that people in the Old Testament were saved by faith in God, just like people in the New Testament were saved by faith in God. They had faith in the God that was coming, Jesus that was coming. In the New Testament, we have faith in the one that came. But uh, you can see that if you look through that. But we also have that kind of illustrated here when he says, hey, this is nothing new. We're talking about a God that was here from the beginning. From the beginning. Um, what is meant by that phrase, from the beginning? Some say it means from the beginning of your faith. Some say it means from the beginning of Christianity or what we know as the church age. But I believe when you look at biblical example and you look at this text, that this from the beginning means literally from the beginning of time. I think that's clear. So what I would, I would make a note in your Bible right here, Genesis 1.1, just in the margin there. And if you have a study Bible, it probably says that already. But Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. So when he says from the beginning, we believe he's referencing all the way back to there in the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth. Or you could write down John 1. John 1, because in John 1, he says the same thing. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The verse 2 goes on and says, the same was in the beginning with God. So back in the book of John, it says the same thing. So you could make a note of those right there in your, in your Bible and have those reference points uh, to look back to. He's talking about the beginning of time. So he said, this is not something new. The God that we worship Jesus Christ, who has made flesh, who dwelt among us here, 
This is not new. This is something that has been here, been with us since the beginning of time. In Revelation 13, verse number 8, he says, And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of life, of the Lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. Jesus Christ was here in the beginning. I just want you to know that Christ was God in the flesh, and he always was. He was never created. He was never born. God was and is and always will be. He is the giver of life because he is life itself. God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. In Psalms 90, in verse number 2, he says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hast formed the earth of the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Even from everlasting to everlasting. It's a concept because we have been given the construct of time by God in his infinite wisdom and plan. He established for us the days, the sun, the moon, the stars, the day shall be known and the night. And that established time for us. But outside of that, we don't, we don't, eternity is even just, how has something always been? It's beyond our comprehension because there's, for us, there's a measurement of time on everything. You know, we, we try and you, you've probably read uh, people that try and describe eternity. And, you know, there's many illustrations, you know, they talk about taking one grain of sand and, and taking hauling that one grain of sand from here to the moon that takes, you know, how many ever months to get there. And then they say, okay, now you come back and get another grain of sand. And then you take it to the moon. And when you have taken every grain of sand from the entirety of the earth, eternity's just begun. You know, I mean, and the illustrations like that are just, they just go on. And in your mind, you, you're trying to comprehend that. And it's just, it's beyond our comprehension, but it's not beyond God. Amen. He was from the beginning, always has been. Now, I've told you before, and uh, I remember a story that uh, my brother Dave told you uh, about Jack Pine. So Jack Pine was a, an older gentleman who we knew in El Paso, Texas. You've heard us use the phrase, praise the Lord and shame on the devil. Okay, that phrase came from Jack Pine. Jack Pine was an old cowboy. I mean, when we knew him, he looked like he was 105. <laughs> I mean, but he probably was 70, but we were pretty young. So we were looking at him. He looked really old, you know, and he didn't have a lot of strength left. But I'll tell you, he always had a Bible with him. He always witnessed to anybody that he would listen to him. He was a witness everywhere he went. He would tell people about Jesus and uh, anything that would happen. You know, he would take his old cowboy hat off and he would throw it up in the Lord, uh, throw it up in the sky. And he would say, praise the Lord. And he would spit on the ground and he would say, shame on the devil. And, uh, you know, anything bad that happened, that's just who he was. He, he walked like a cowboy. You know, he was, he was like this all the time, just walking around. And uh, you guys might remember my brother Dave telling a story about how he went to Walmart with Jack Pine one time. And they were in a camper. And they, they, took, they, they parked the camper in the parking lot. And then they went into the store, and when they came out, somebody had hit the back of the camper and busted, I mean, you could see all the way into the camper, busted the whole back end of the camper off. And Jack Pine looked at that, and he goes, praise the Lord, 
and shame on the devil. <laughs> he's like, yep, yeah, well, it's God's camper. I'm just waiting to see how he's going to fix it, you know. And he would, he would hobble along and he just, you know, didn't let anything bother, just didn't let anything get to him. And he always was a witness everywhere he went. You know, uh, I tell you that you guys now, you know a little bit about Jack Pine, right? But none of you have ever met him. If Jack Pine came in the door, now he's gone on to glory now. He's not, he's not even with us anymore. But if he came in the back door here, none of you would look at him and say, oh, that's Jack Pine. You know a little bit about him, but you've never had the privilege of knowing him personally. But you see, John gives us an example here. He talks about his Lord, and he says, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled the word of life. He gives a very personal testimony to the fact that he had the privilege of knowing God in person, of knowing Jesus Christ, this person named Jesus Christ who was God in the flesh. He had the privilege of hearing him, of seeing him and handling him with his own hands. The Bible tells us the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. John gives clear testimony here that he had heard with his own ears Jesus Christ. He had heard him say directly from Christ's mouth the Sermon on the Mount. He heard when Christ called him and his brother there in Matthew. said, hey, come on. I'm going to make you fishers of men. He heard Christ tell men to let go of their traditions and to look to the scriptures. He heard him in authority command out demons and tell them to depart. He heard him command the winds and the waves at his will and they obeyed. He heard him rebuke the religious crowd, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He heard him speak of love and forgiveness because his father had forgiven them. He had heard him speak of the dread of the cross, but he also heard him cry from the cross, it is finished. And he heard the resurrected Savior say, peace unto you, as the Father has sent me also, so send I you. You see, he got to hear those things in person to actually hear them from Christ himself. Beloved, it's a great need today that men hear from God. We do not and will not ever have the privilege that John had, but we need to hear from God and we hear from God from his word. Amen. Amen. This is how we hear from God. And how are we going to hear it if we're not in it, if we're not listening to it? In John 8, 31 and 32 he says, then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, if you continue in my word, then you are my disciples indeed. And ye shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. We need to hear from God and we hear it through his word today. And we say that he said, I saw him. He saw him. First, uh, second Peter chapter one, verse number 16 says, for we have not followed cunningly devised fables, we 
when we made known unto you the power of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, he says, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Matthew Henry says, not only were they ear witnesses, but they were eyewitnesses. They saw, they saw and they heard. This were in this text here, he, he divides it into two, two ways. He says, which we have seen with our eyes and we have looked upon. These are two different meanings. There is the idea of having seen something with your eyes. But then to look upon is to examine more closely. Um, I can see the Bible is in front of me. But if I'm going to read it to you, I got to put my glasses on. <laughs> I got to, if I'm going to look intently, if I'm going to look for understanding, it's going to take more than just a fleeting glance. And beloved, if we're going to see God, who he is, as Paul said, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, it takes more than just a fleeting glance, just a fleeting experience with Jesus Christ one day on the sideline somewhere. It takes looking, looking intently looking with the goal and the expectation to get understanding. That's what we need. In Jeremiah 9, 24, he says, But let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me, that I am the Lord, which exerciseth loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. Is he going to glory in something? Glory that you know him. That's something worth glory in. He saw him. He looked on him. He saw Jesus when he healed the sick. And when he gave sight to the blind. He saw Jesus when he gave legs to the lame and even life to the dead. He was looking. He was getting understanding. He was observing his master. He saw him defy all the laws of nature when he walked on water and when he turned water into wine. He saw him hold a child in his arms and he saw those same arms turn over the tables of the money changers. He saw him betrayed and he saw him beaten. He saw him suffer and he saw him sacrificed. He saw him resurrected and he saw him return to glory. He saw Jesus. Have you seen him? Have you seen him? Then they, they had the privilege. You know, these are some privileges that John had that you and I will never have. Not, not this side of heaven. I mean, one of the things we look forward to greatly is getting into heaven and being able to actually see Jesus. Yeah. I've got an old, an old tape. Uh, I think it's John R. Rice is singing, I think. I don't remember for sure, but he's, he's singing and the preacher says, preacher says on there, he says, when I die, don't cry for me. Don't cry for me because I'm in heaven. I'm with Jesus I'm with my Lord, my Savior. Don't cry for me. We're looking forward to that day when we get to see Jesus. John got to see him here on earth. And it says here that he got to touch him. 
to touch them. This, and I'm not a Greek scholar, you guys know that, but word has a much deeper meaning than that of a, of a casual touch or uh, just shaking hands or, or maybe somebody brushed by somebody else. But, but the idea of an embrace, the idea of, of, of holding on, Jesus touched them. He hugged them. He took them by the hand, and I'm sure at times he patted them on the back. We know that he even had his feet washed by Jesus. We know at the Last Supper, John leaned his head down on the chest of his master. In John 21, verse number 20, he says, Then Peter, turning about, seeth the disciple whom Jesus loved, which he also leaned on his breast at supper and said, Lord, which is he that betrayeth thee? You see, what John was saying to those Gnostics, those that were denying Jesus Christ, he says, I heard him. I saw him. I touched him. You can't tell me he wasn't God. He was God. I was there. What a privilege John had to see him. But will you turn in your Bibles to John chapter 20, the book of John, not 1 John. I want you to see something for you and I tonight. Because I was looking at this thought and thinking about the privilege that John had and thinking, you know what, as Christians, we're never going to have that. We're never going to get to walk with Jesus. We're never going to get Jesus to come up and tell us, hey, good job. Or stick in there. You can make it. We're not going to get that. But I want you to see something that we have that John didn't. In John chapter 20, verse number 29, verse 29, Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. But blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. Beloved, God says to us, you're blessed by God because of your faith to believe without seeing. You remember Thomas, doubting Thomas. He said, except I see the the nail prints in his hands, except I see and touch the the hole in his side, I I can't believe. And Jesus presenting himself to Thomas said, oh, you believe now. But blessed are they that believe who have not seen. And you and I are blessed by God for believing, even though we don't have the privilege of seeing him this side of glory, we'll get to see him one day. Amen. Amen. God, Jesus Christ, was eternal. I want you to know as well is that Christ is experiential. And I use that word uh, hesitantly today because everybody's looking for an experience. But I want you to know that we serve a real God. That our faith is something that is to be experienced. And, And we should, if you haven't been moved by God, there's something wrong. It's something that should move you. It's something that God should do in your heart and life. He says in verse number two and three, he says, for the life was manifested and we have seen it and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life, which was with the father when was manifested unto us. 
So Jesus Christ was manifested. He was made visible. He showed his love. He, he was here on earth. And verse number three says, That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you. Why? That ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. Can I remind you tonight that God did not just wind up the earth like some great clockmaker in eternity past and then walk away. I don't know how many of you have heard or are familiar with the watchmaker theology uh, behind. It's kind of a, 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 a combination or a, a combining of evolution and, the, and theology creation because Isaac Newton, who uh, in the scientific revolution saw the consistency of the world, the, the, the moving of the planets. I mean, how is it that they can today tell you 75 years from now at 2 o'clock in the afternoon there's going to be a comet that's going to be visible from this place in Maryland? How can they tell you that? Why? Because there is a consistency about where the, the planets move and, and everything in creation. I mean, he even described the idea of just the intricate detail on the, the wings of a, of a fly. And he said, there has to be some great designer. And so they have the idea of that God designed it, wound it up, and then left it to go. Now, Isaac Newton said that, I, you know, obviously at some points throughout history, God has had to tinker with the clock a little bit. <laughs> That's what he said. God had to tinker with it every now and again, make things sure on track, make things are working okay. But listen, that's what people would call theistic evolution. But we believe in creation. Amen. That God created it all. And there is a designer, amen, his name was God, and he created it. But not only did he just create it, but he is concerned with what's happening here on earth. And that's why he sent his son to earth. That's why his son was made manifest, because he's concerned with what's happening here, because he wants to know. John was bearing witness to this truth, the fact that he had experienced all this. It wasn't hearsay. It wasn't just something he had heard somebody say about something, no, he knew this personally. For some, God is just an idea. It's this abstract thought or, or dream. It's not really anything real. Um, I think about the, you know, the privilege Mary and I had to go to India. But, you know, they have hundreds of gods. There's gods everywhere. But they're not a god that they can have a personal relationship with. They're not a, it's not a god that they can know that they can understand, that they, it's just this idea of some type of God that's out there that, you know, they don't want to make them mad. And, but we're able to experience and know God personally. Psalms 34.8 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. I think that verse right there, if there wasn't any other proof text, is, is, a, is a good proof text that God wants his people to experience a relationship with him. It's something that we're supposed to know that we have. It's something that we can experience in this life. John was declaring the truth to them. 
He says, we declare this in verse number three, which I have seen and heard and declare we unto you. Can I just throw this out that as Christians, we're supposed to be declaring. Declaring to the world what God has done for us. The the difference that Christ has made and how we've experienced Christ, what we've seen and heard, we're supposed to be declaring to the world. Can I tell you what Jesus did for me? Can I tell you how he changed my life? Can I tell you about my Savior? You know, witnessing can be just something as simple as telling your testimony. Talking about how God saved you and what that means. And he says there's a reason It's because we are to be able to enjoy, to experience, to have two-way fellowship. There's vertical fellowship with God and horizontal fellowship with man. This fellowship is a key principle and thought that's taught throughout these passages here in 1 John. John put it like this in John chapter 17. He said, neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their words, that they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, and they also be one in us. Christ describing the relationship that he had with the Father and describing that relationship as available to the Christian. Just as I am one with the Father, Christians can be one with me. We are one with each other. This is the fellowship that's supposed to be available to us. I want you to know that this fellowship, beloved, is a partnership. It's a partnership. It's something that goes beyond a a casual greeting. Hebrews 13.5 Anybody know the part of that verse that we really like? Hebrews 13, 5, putting you on the spot. I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. That's the fellowship we have with God. It's a partnership. He said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. You know, one of the things that men that your wife need to know They need to have security in your relationship that you will never leave them nor forsake them. There's a twofold aspect there. How many of you know that you may say, well, bless God, I don't believe in divorce and I'm not leaving her no matter what. But you could forsake her in your spirit a long time before you ever leave her. And actually, that's what's going to happen. You'll have forsaken her in your heart a long time before you ever leave her. But God says, not only will I never leave you, I'll never forsake you. I'll never leave you in my heart. I'll never leave you in my spirit. I'll never leave. I'm going to always be there to have and maintain a close and loving, compassionate relationship with you. That's the fellowship we have with the Father. And that's the fellowship we're supposed to have with one another. It's made possible because of our fellowship with the Father. Because we're one with Him, we can be one with one another. This is a unification around a common goal. 
It's so much deeper than just a potluck. It's a sharing of the burdens and the blessings that come into our lives. That's part of what being part of a New Testament church is. We talk about fellowship, but beloved, our fellowship is not just getting together after church and and sharing some cake and ice cream, and boy, wasn't that fun. No, our fellowship is, is a combined spirit of unification where we are together carrying, enjoying the blessings and carrying the burdens. If I told the church today, hallelujah, we just had somebody in Hunt Valley, don't even know who they were, but they passed away this week and they just, one day a church member was out and was kind to them and gave them a gospel track and they didn't have any family and so when they died, they decided they were going to leave $500,000 to Hunt Valley Baptist Church and God's people said, amen. amen. Yeah, that's, we would rejoice together as a church. We're all excited about that, right? Let me turn it around. What if I said to you, beloved, I don't understand it. I don't know why. Doesn't make sense to me, but Baltimore County let me know today that Hunt Valley Baptist Church has to pay back the cost of the court case. We've got to come up with a million dollars to pay that off. You see, somebody that wasn't truly part of the fellowship would say, uh, no, not me. Uh, I don't need to do that. That's on the church. And I'm going to go to a different church. You see, they do not truly understand what it means to be part of the fellowship. Because it's an enjoyment of the blessings, but it's also a carrying of the burdens. And as a church, we say, well, God knows. God will meet the need. We're going to do it together to do what we have to do. And we're going to hire a good lawyer, amen? (laughs) But what I'm saying is that idea, I mean, sometimes, I mean, everybody's excited about the blessings, right? But if we're really, when I'm talking about this partnership, we could talk to the husband and wife relationship again. It's for better, for worse, amen? It's in richer and poorer. It's, it's, it's a fellowship that's there when things are good and when things are bad. Either way. And that's where the true heart of a church comes through. When we say together, listen, here's what we need to do. And God's people say, okay, let's do it. It's going to be hard. It's going to be a lot of work. going to be expensive. going to be a burden. Whatever, whatever it is, as God's family... As part of this church, we say, you know what? We're going to do it together. And that's where that spirit of fellowship comes that he's talking about here. We have fellowship with the Father, and we have fellowship with one another. It's very fitting that we just taught through all of the one another's. Because we are one another. Is it, Christianity is a one another faith. It's something that was very clearly taught that we are to be thinking about one another. And then I want you to see here that Christ is essential in verse number four. He says, and these things we write unto you that your joy may be full. He says, listen, we wrote all this down so that your joy may be full. I'm telling you about Christ and who he is 
and that he's eternal, and that our fellowship with him that begins with a right relationship with God can extend to a right relationship with God's family, that your joy may be full. And if you're going to have complete and full joy as a Christian, it's foundational that our relationship with Christ is right. It is essential. Joy is to be a normal part of every believer's life. Not that we don't ever have hardship. Not that you're not ever sad. Maybe even heartbroken at times because of loss or challenges that we face. But we have joy in the Lord. He tells us much the same thing in John 15, verse number 11. So if you wanted to jot next to John 1, 4 there, John 15, 11, just as a reference point, he said, These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. He says, hey, I spoke this to you so you could have the joy of the Lord in your heart, and your joy, even here on earth, would be full. There is something that you and I have in Christ, and it's secure, and that is the joy of the Lord. Nobody can take that from you. In John 16, 22, he says, And ye know there, you now therefore have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your hearts shall rejoice, and your joy no man can take from you. I've read stories about Jewish Christians who were in the Auschwitz and other concentration camps, and they talk about how hard things were And people would talk to them and ask of them, how can you have a smile even in the face of all of this? They say, well, they can take my house. They can take all my possessions. They can lock me in here, but they can't take away my joy. That's something that comes from God. And they would not let it be robbed from them. We see, beloved, here that Christ was made manifest. In verse number three, God revealed himself to us. And the reason is, is because he wants us to have fellowship with him. And the result is that we may have fullness of joy. Fullness of joy. I hope that your joy is full tonight.